we look uh, again at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hear God's word. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word as ever, and we ask you that through now the preaching of your word that you might enlighten our path by it and illumine our minds through it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I indicated last time, and you might have noticed in the title, I, I, I like the King James here, not be transformed, but be ye transformed. So I might be saying that through the sermon. We come uh, to the positive. Last time we considered the negative. The negative was do not be conformed to this world. And, and let us realize the importance of the negative, uh, certainly with respect to the positive, because there is no way to be transformed positively until we have ceased to be conformed uh, negatively to this world. If you're still being conformed to this world, then there's no way for you to be transformed in a positive sense into what you're supposed to be. But supposing that you've ceased to be conformed to this world as much as you can, for we acknowledged last time there's always something of the world in our lives, then we are prepared to put into practice the positive side. Be ye transformed. Notice the contrast, the way these two ideas are set side by side, the negative and the positive. Do not be conformed. Be ye transformed. Those two ideas are meant to go together. I would also notice when you take them together, not just as a contrast, don't be conformed to this, be transformed, that in the transformation there is also the idea of conformity. For in refusing to be conformed to this world, we are seeking conformity, as John Murray says. And I like this idea very much. It fits in with what Paul is saying in other places. We are seeking to be conformed to another world, even that of heaven. We are seeking to conform our life to the life which is to come and in which our citizen exists, Paul says. Where our life is hid in Christ, he says in another place. Set your mind, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Colossians chapter 3. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting in the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Do you notice the contrast there? Don't do this, do this. For you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. So that's what you ought to seek. And that's what your life ought to reflect. The heavenly pattern uh, of the heavenly life. And fundamentally, this is the framework of the Christian life. It's what Christ, uh, or sanctification. It's what sanctification consists of entirely. Both the negative putting off of the old. We find that in many places in the New Testament. And, and, and positively, the putting on of the new. We put off the old man and the old ways of the world when we, when we came to Christ. And there we put on the new man. And we embrace the new way of life. And we're seeking to work that out all the days of our life. But you see, you don't just do that at the beginning. 
This will be one of the fundamental uh, points of the sermon. But we're really doing that all the time. We're putting off or putting on. Every day we are to do this. And so uh, if we look at our shorter catechism and its answer, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And there you notice the language of renewal. And are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Or to use the language of the theologians to give ourselves to mortification and to vivification. Dying unto sin and living unto righteousness. The whole of the Christian life consists of this. These two things. Well, we're on the second side of that. Again, the positive. Be ye renewed. And there are two aspects to this positive command. And then one which is implied. The first is what? What is being commanded of us as Christians is that we be transformed. How are we to do it? That's the second thing of equal importance. Answer by the renewing of your mind. And so the way to be transformed is by the renewing of your mind. And then is a third question, which I think is implied, but critically important. Why? Why are we to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? And this comes in given the wider scope of what's being said in verses 1 and 2 and indeed the whole of the epistle. The answer to the question why is by or because of God's mercies to you. In other words, and please hear me saying this, and I hope to say it often as we come now to the practical section of the, of the epistle. Don't start with a command ever. I'll say that again. Don't start with the command ever. That is the high road to legalism. Paul doesn't start with the command. I don't start with the command. Start instead with this. As you seek to live out the Christian life. And to hear the commands. Start with this. God's mercy. I beseech you by the mercies of God. Start with his grace. Verse 3. Listen. For I say through the grace given me. Do you see that as ever the apostle's starting point? God's mercy. God's grace. Start with this as well, his love for you in Christ, his son, which he demonstrated on the cross. Romans chapter five, Romans chapter eight. And then in light of that, learn what it is to say and to put into practice. Therefore, by the mercies of God to you in Christ, be ye transformed by the renewing of the mind. This is what Thomas Boston calls, and I like this way of putting it very much. I think you can expect to hear me saying, saying this an awful lot in the coming sermons. This is the gospel way of sanctifying sinners. The gospel way. The gospel way does not appeal to our own works. It does not uh, appeal or call us to human effort as though sanctification were our own work. The gospel way of sanctifying sinners occurs by an appeal to God's mercy to us in Christ. This is something I hope to remind you of often. Indeed, every sermon. I don't want anyone to think for a moment that we've finished with the gospel. You see, that's the danger. I said that uh, yesterday. Uh, I reminded the men of this in the men's breakfast. You see. Uh, the danger when you're preaching the doctrines is to forget the application. But the danger you see on the other side when you come to the application is to forget the doctrines. Well, we can never do either. When preaching the, the doctrines, we need to apply them. When we come to the Christian life, we need to be reminded of the doctrines. It's often been said that we need to preach doctrinal sermons practically. And we need to preach practical sermons doctrinally. That's what I'm seeking to do. 
And you have every right to expect that from me. Don't think, I say again, for a moment, now that we've come to the Christian life, that we've finished with the gospel. I say that for you. I say that for me. The gospel way of sanctifying sinners. This is why we do this. We do it because of what he's done for us, number one, and what he's still doing in us. Don't you realize, Paul says, what you are as a Christian? Don't you realize that you're a new man in Christ Jesus? The old is past, the new has come, chapter 6. You're now dead to sin. Why? Because of what he's done for you. Beyond that, don't you realize that now you're a Christian, that Christ is in you, chapter 8? That's what you are. And because Christ is in you, which also means the Holy Spirit is in you, this means that you as a Christian have enormous, powerful potential to live out all of the commands, not in your own strength, you see, but in the living out of this reality that Christ is in me. You see, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ has saved me, and do you know he's still saving me? He's still at work in me, and what he's begun in me, he will bring to completion. That's the gospel way of sanctification. It appeals more than anything else to him and to what he's doing. And so when we speak of the grace of God in saving sinners, we must, along with Calvin, speak of a twofold grace. There is a grace of God in justifying sinners. Yes, thank God for that. But there is also the grace of God in sanctifying sinners. And you see, it's the same grace. It's the grace that is found in Jesus Christ and which is received not by works, but by faith. How do I get this grace? How is it realized in my life? The grace of sanctification. I get it by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. Now, if that is true, if what I just said is true, that the gospel is still being worked out in your life, that the grace of God is a powerful force in your life that is making you holier all the time. If that is true, then that means that everything that Paul holds forth as the duty of the Christian in chapters 12 and following is the obvious and necessary outworking of the earlier teaching. Given what the Christian is and what is true of him, what is true of you, of course he must give himself to this kind of living. It's not only right, it's necessary. Seeing that this is true of me, of course I must live like this. And if a Christian isn't living like this, then it's obvious that he's forgotten the teaching. In other words, he started with the law. He's forgotten the gospel. He's forgotten who he is and what's true of him. A Christian, let me remind you, as Paul says, is someone who doesn't walk according to the flesh, but who walks according to the spirit. A Christian is someone who's not under the law, but he's under grace. And the question is, if we claim that we are Christians, are we? Are we living like this? And have we realized this about ourselves? Is this what we are doing? Are we walking according to the spirit? Are we living according to grace and not according to the law? And so I say, come back often to this word, therefore. I beseech you, therefore. It makes you go back to all this earlier teaching and then having considered it to say, of course, I must live in this new way. Of course, I must give myself, among other things, to this work of inward renewal. I must be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So let us next look at this word transformed. I don't know if I want to give it to you in the Greek or not. I think I won't. I have it here in my notes. It's the word uh, upon, uh, based upon which we get the word metamorphosis. I'll, I'll give you that in the English. Of, of this word, Robert Haldane says, 
it signifies the change of appearance of one thing into that of another. This term denotes the entire change that passes on a man when he becomes a Christian. He's different than he was before. So it's an entire change. It's a thoroughgoing change. He's not what he was. Now he's something new. Martin Lloyd-Jones takes a slightly different line describing it like this. He says the transformation is like what happened to Jesus when he was transfigured. And in fact, the word transfigured, that is translated transfigured, is actually transformed. It's the same word. We read that Jesus on the mount was transformed. He metamorphosized. His form, his appearance changed. He appeared to be different than he had before. Again, the same word. And the thing to notice, this is the emphasis of Lloyd-Jones, is that this transformation was such that he appeared as he really was. You see, at the mountain, he blazed like the sun. His true glory was revealed, whereas the foot of the mountain, both before and after, his inner glory was obscured. It was veiled. They weren't really able to see the entire truth about him, but upon, uh, atop the mountain, they were. And so when he was transformed, he was transformed in such a way that he revealed as he really was. That's the thought. And Lloyd-Jones applies that to the Christian. The Christian, when he's transformed uh, or being transformed, what he's doing is revealing his true nature now that he's a Christian. You see, when he's conforming to the world, he's telling a lie. That's not really who I am. That's not who I was saved to be. But when I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind, now I'm telling the truth. Now I'm revealing my true nature As a Christian, even as the apostles beheld the true nature of Jesus upon the top of the mountain. To use the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, believers are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord. You know, in a sense, what happened to Jesus atop the mount is happening to you. The very glory of Jesus is shining forth in you more and more. You are being transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ himself. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's what's true of you as a Christian. And if you take these two ideas together, you see, uh, to use uh, Haldane and Lloyd-Jones together, really, I agree with them both. First, we are transformed into something new. And then we are being transformed more and more in accordance with our new nature. So that increasingly over time, it becomes clear who we are in Christ. It becomes clearer and clearer to ourselves and to others that Christ really is in us as believers. And so the word transformed or metamorphosis is capable of various expressions in the Christian life. You can't really speak of it. With respect to one vantage point, already I've spoken of two. Haldane says one thing, Lloyd-Jones says another. They're both right. And we could speak of two fundamental vantage points of transformation with respect to the Christian life. The first is, and it's clear that Haldane had this in mind, it's the transformation that occurs or the great change that occurs at conversion. To be transformed refers to the great change that occurs when a man is saved. And when I talk about a Christian testimony, that's what a man is testifying to. You know, I once lived like this, but now when God saved me, I've begun to live like this. It, it was to this that Jesus referred when he says, you must be born again to Nicodemus. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if any man is in Christ, he's in a new creation. The old things have passed, the new has come. 
the great change that occurs when a man is saved and how great indeed is the change. John Murray says it is a deep seated and permanent change. It deals with the renovation of the soul, the inner man. Primarily then it occurs within, in the realm of the consciousness and of the mind. Paul in chapter 8 speaks of the vast difference between the carnal mind and the spiritual mind. The carnal man is given to carnal thoughts. The spiritual man, that is the Christian, is given to spiritual thoughts. And it is on the basis of this inward change That outward behavior is changed as well. The mind is renewed and the outward behavior then begins to conform to this new pattern. And thus it becomes a discernible and a visible outward change in a man's life. But you see, it begins within and then it begins to work its way and manifest itself outwardly. If we had time, I would read to you Ephesians chapter 4 where the apostle speaks of this very clearly. But I think I've made the point. The second vantage point is the the great change being worked out in our lives. The change that occurs in our conversions beginning a process of renovation. So you've been renewed, but you're being renewed. That's the idea. A process. It's ongoing, it's continual, it's progressive. We speak of progressive sanctification. That's what we're talking about here. And this idea could also be further divided into two. Progressive sanctification under two headings. The first is what is happening to the believer. It is a process of renewal to which he is subject by virtue of his being in Christ. God is at work in him. I was speaking of that earlier. The grace of God at work in you. The life of Christ in you and of the Holy Spirit. As God has saved you, so he's carrying forward and completing the work which he's begun in conversion. You see, conversion isn't the end, it's the beginning. The Christian life doesn't end but begins at conversion. Or we could speak of regeneration. In our regeneration or our conversion... There is a process of renovation that begins and is being worked out day after day after day. You see what I'm saying, and I want to be clear about this. This is what's happening to the believer. Not what the believer is doing, but what God is doing. And so again, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed Into the same image from glory to glory. Just as by the spirit of the Lord. Who's doing it again? It's God who's doing it. You know I said this to Lou Prather on her deathbed. I said you know even as. You are here likely on your your dying bed. Do you realize that the grace of God is still at work in you? So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Do you realize that's true and perhaps most true of the believer on their deathbed? There, though, the outer man is decaying in its final its final blow. The inner man is triumphing. He's flourishing for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Christian is a man to the very end who's being renewed every day, more and more, all the time. To the very end. But the second way that we could look at at this is what we are commanded to do. And so in the first case, it's something that's happening to us. And in the second case, it's something that we are exhorted to do ourselves. Be ye transformed. Unquestionably, that is the emphasis of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It is an exhortation. It is a command to believers. This is something that you are supposed to do. In the same way you are supposed to not be conformed to this world, you are uh, in the opposite direction. You are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we often find this in Paul. Speaking of sanctification, he gives a command like this. He says, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, well, he tells us to put off concerning uh, your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. That could be a like, uh, a likened to do not be conformed to the world. And positively, he says, and be renewed. In the spirit of your mind. Similarly he says in Colossians chapter 3 verse 2. Set your mind on things above not on things of the earth. It's a command. It's something the believer is to do. Now again notice the order. You begin with with what's true of you. You've died. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And it is on that basis that you realize it's your duty to carry this forward in the newfound strength you have in Christ. Christ is in me, I in him. I'm being transformed day by day by his grace at work in me. And so too, on that basis, you see, I am commanded to be transformed. And involved in this idea is no contradiction. God is at work in me, I am to work. I've died to sin, so I am to put sin to death. That is always what you find in the New Testament. And so what's the believer to do? He's commanded to do this. How is he to do it? Or or what's he commanded to do here? Well, he's commanded here to gather strength. But you see, the strength that he is to gather is not found so much in himself as it's that newfound strength that he's discovered in himself by virtue of Christ dwelling in him. And that's the reality. That's the idea that he begins to work out. So far as this from being a principle of works... It is rather, once again, you see the outworking of the principle of grace. Christ is in me, and thus I am able to live in this way. Thus I am able to apply diligence in this work of transformation. And realizing this about myself, I give myself to it. I make it my constant work. I see it as my duty as a believer, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. You see, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere... And this really captures the thought perfectly. You probably were already thinking of it because I all but said it. Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13, perhaps the principal text on sanctification. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is at work in you. And so you're to work out what he's working in you. Do you understand that? It's always the picture of sanctification that one finds in the Bible. The question is how we are to do this. 
And here I would, uh, I would offer many helps from John Owen's book, Spiritual Mindedness. We're talking about the mind. Be renewed in your mind. How are we to do that? The first thing that we ought to see is that progress is the goal of the Christian life. That's what the apostle is setting before us. In other words, the enemy is stagnation. The danger is, you see, everything I said until I came to the last thing was we are passive. God is working in us. We're contributing nothing by way of our works. And the danger is that, well, in a sense, we so revel in that, that we become passive. We become stagnant. We think that everything is already done. But that's, well, that's a dangerous thing to do. If you do that, I said earlier, you're on the high road to legalism. Well, here I say, if you do that, you're on the high road to antinomianism. No, Christianity isn't like that. That's not how you learned Christ if you learned him. The way you learned him was like this. You're to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And that is your constant work. As we've put him on, so we are to live. Yes, so progress is the goal. Let me read my first of many John Owen quotes. He says, why do many Christians grow so slowly in their desire for spiritual things? The majority are content to remain in their present state and are only concerned not to lose the ground they have gained. I could read more, but that's enough. And I confess at times I've been guilty of that. And I know you have as well. Don't you see the goal that is set before us when Paul says be transformed by the renewing of your mind is progress. Always. We should always be progressing as Christian people. We should always see stagnation and apathy as the enemy. The goal of Christian living then is that of constant inward renewal from which we will spring uh, a harvest of fruitful Christian living. And if we were to ask then why so many do so little for God, which is sadly the norm, I'm afraid here we have our answer. It's that they aimed for so little and so they achieved what they aimed. The second is in making uh, the second answer to the question how we're to do this is in making progress our aim. Let us engage the mind first and foremost. Be ye transformed. How? By the renewing of the mind. Romans chapter 12. Ephesians 4.23. Colossians 3.2. They all give the same answer. They all set forth the same goal. The renewal of the mind. The cultivation of the Christian mind. And so what we're seeking to do primarily is to press forward in the realm of our own thoughts. We are seeking to embrace and to understand the truth as it is in Jesus, even as we learned it from him. We are seeking to cultivate spiritual thinking and the spiritual mind. Romans chapter eight, verses five through eight. And so the point is, if we would press on in our transformation as Christians, we must give ourselves to a new way of thinking. Owen calls this the habit of the mind. It's the way the mind is accustomed to thinking. Let me read another quote of his. He says, there can be no greater evidence of a renewed heart and mind than a change of habit and stream of our thoughts. The more our thoughts flow in a new spiritual channel from a new spiritual source wrought in us, the more evidence we have that we are spiritually minded. So I'm saying cultivate the mind, but also I'm saying it takes time. Don't you realize that if you read Owen, you would have known that if you've lived the Christian life for any amount of time, you know that. We could call this a discipline of the Christian life. It takes time. It takes effort. You know, the old Christians used to say, take time to be holy. We don't say that so much anymore, do we? Well, take time to be holy. That's what I'm saying. Give diligence to cultivating the spiritual mind. 
Spiritual mindedness, Owen says, will never be preserved, nor the requirements listed ever be carried out rightly unless we dedicate some part of our time especially to them. He also says, practice makes perfect. Those who conscientiously persist in duty shall grow daily more enlightened, more wise, and more experienced in spiritual things until they are able to meditate on them with ease and success. You say, it's difficult. Well, Owen says, and I say, well, give yourself to it. And you might find after a while it becomes easy. Lastly, with Owen, I would speak of the importance of the ordinances. The ordinances that Jesus Christ has set up in Christian worship. By this, I mean the reading of the scriptures, listening to sermons, etc. Do you understand why it was that Jesus Christ set these things up as the ordinances of a new covenant? The answer is because he was interested in the renewal of your mind. That's what he's after in worship. He was when he set up preaching. And these other things as well, but preaching primarily and the reading of scripture, he was establishing the means of your transformation. And that's why we call them the means of grace, by the way, because as a means of grace, it is the means by which God's grace is realized in you. These are the means by which your mind is renewed and you are being transformed and you are being conformed to his image. Let me emphasize that as well. And so along those lines, let me make three further points about the ordinances from John Owen. He says, first, that the believer meets with Christ in the ordinances, and thus he delights in them, and he prepares for their observance. Believers delight in the duties of evangelical worship, he says, because in in it they meet with God as revealed in Christ. In worship, they seek a personal experience of fellowship with God in Christ By them, Christ communicates his love and grace to us, and in them and by them we renew our faith in him and pour out our love to him. In every act of divine worship, the believer is saying to Christ, I trust you and I love you. He also goes on to say they do not prepare their minds to receive these blessings nor come expecting to receive them. He says many believers rather do not come prepared or expecting anything. They do not fully realize that these holy administrations and duties are appointed and given to us by God chiefly as the means by which he can pour out his love into our souls. It's an opportunity missed, Owen is saying. But the second thing he says is that to desire and think spiritual things is to be spiritually minded. It is what it means to be renewed in our mind. He says, when the heart is spiritually renewed and its desires embrace spiritual and heavenly things, a transformation takes place. The whole soul is transformed into the image of spiritual and heavenly things. And so he says, third and lastly, that spiritual thoughts have a tendency to make us spiritual. That is The object of our thoughts have a power to conform our minds to their likeness. And so the carnal mind, so full of earthly thoughts, is ever being conformed to the earthly image and the earthly pattern. The man who's given to to carnal thoughts is carnal. The man who's given to worldly thoughts is worldly. The thoughts themselves are transforming and conforming him after the image. But the spiritual man, ever thinking spiritual thoughts, is being conformed by them after the heavenly pattern. And so he says, in what I think is the most helpful section, 
When the heart embraces spiritual and heavenly things, it is gradually changed and transformed into the image and the likeness of those things, becoming more and more spiritual and heavenly. This work is not completed all at once, but is a gradual work so that our hearts are transformed more and more into the image of spiritual and heavenly things. Their minds, he says on the next page, are changed into the image of the things themselves. So when by faith men come to embrace heavenly things, they are daily made more and more heavenly by the effective working of the principle of spiritual life and grace in them. Thus, the inward man is renewed day by day. Love becomes more sincere and ardent. Delight becomes more ravishing. Desire becomes more intense. On and on he goes. The way to be transformed is to think spiritual heavenly thoughts. Do you see why this is the key, indeed the whole key, to Christian living? Indeed, why so many of us go wrong in our experience. Why we fall victim to so many sins, not knowing which way to go. It all begins, it all originates in the mind. Do you understand, now I smile when I say this because I've become known for this, but I'm prepared to defend it. Do you know that the most loving thing you could do for a man in trouble is to give him a good book? Or to send him a good sermon? He's in trouble, he doesn't know what to do, which way to go. Well, give him a good book. Send him a sermon. Do you understand that in the times that the church was most spiritual... Those have always been the times that Christians were given to reading the best books and listening to the best sermons. The reason is because there's no other way to be renewed but in this way, by the renewing of our mind after the heavenly pattern. And so I'm saying this. We need to read good books. We need to listen to good sermons. We need to demand these things. There's really no hope for the church and the Christian apart from these things. I would even say that I've always worried about any Christian who does not give himself to the discipline of reading. The believer is sanctified by the truth. The believer is sanctified in the truth. And so then, do you see how it all fits together with the prior verse? That we are to offer unto God our reasonable or our rational service with the mind. The Christian is someone with a new mind. And he's got to use it. Or else he isn't really serving God. And that's the whole key to making progress in the Christian life. Let us give ourselves to it fully. Amen. And let us come to the table together.